The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about two medieval queens of Islam. Mind blown. Let's get into this. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, were Islamic queens successful in the medieval era? We're going to be joined in this episode by Dr. Shahla Harry. She is a professor of anthropology at Boston University. She's back. And she's back. If you didn't listen to it, she was on our previous episode, and I am so excited to have her back to talk about the medieval era. Yay. Exciting. So um, I became introduced to her through her book. I, okay. It came, it popped up as something I should read, um, you know, on Amazon or something yep. like that. Things Kelsey should read. Things Kelsey should read. And Thank you, Amazon. the title of her book, which everyone can find, um, is The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, mm. Succession, Authority, and Gender. And Out now on paperback, Kindle, or hardcover in mm-hmm. Amazon. Yes. And... So when I was reading her book, one of the things that I really loved about it is it spans the early years of Mm -hmm. um, the aftermath of Muhammad's death. And then it takes you all the way up to present day and looking at women leaders in different periods of Islamic history. And I was shocked because while I knew women were foundational in sort of the early years of Islam, um, it was my understanding, sort of my general understanding that later hadiths sort of limited the power of women. Okay. And so the idea that there would be queens of Islam leading in the medieval era, surprising to me. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, she gets up to present day where we're seeing in the Islamic world very few women leaders, and the few that are there are um, mistreated, assassinated, you know, different different things like that. Mm. Anyway, I, I really enjoyed reading this book because it, it spans so much time, and it gave me a really big overview of this. If you didn't listen to our previous episode, we are talking in that episode about sort of the precedent set by early documents and early is female Islamic leaders for what women's leadership looks like. In this episode, we're going to look at women who, despite that sort of negative precedent for mm-hmm. female leadership, found their way to power and okay. thrived there. But, um, <laughs> well, some thrived, others did not. And so we're going to look at – so we're asking the question, were they successful? Okay. She uses several examples to make her points in her book, and she's going to share them with us. Yay. Today. Well, I'm excited. Um, this is very interesting. It's super interesting. Um, all right. Let's get into it. Hello, my name is Shahla Hairi, and uh, I'm a professor of anthropology at Boston University. I was born in Iran, finished high school, and then I came to uh, America. And for all practical purposes, I'm more of a Bostonian than Tehranian right now. (laughs) Well, that's amazing. Thank you again for joining us today. We're going to talk today about the medieval queens in your recent book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender, which everybody can find on Amazon. 
And um, in this middle section of your book, you highlight two queens. And I'm wondering why you chose the two women that you chose. And it made me wonder, being a novice and being ignorant as I am, were these the only two women that um, rose to this position? Or were they just two women that you selected for some other reasons? Very good question. No, there were others. Um, but I chose these two um, queens um, from different uh, countries, different um, societies, at different um, periods in the history of the development of Islam, partly because I was concentrating on ruling queens. There were a lot of queen concerts. But at the same time, on uh, in 13th century Muslim world, this is really a very unique, very interesting period in the history of the uh, you know, Muslim world. Three queens in three corners of, three ruling queens in three corners of the Muslim world ruled. This is in 13th century. One, which is the most important one, the one that I have focused on, Razia Sultan from India. Another one was an extremely interesting person her name is Shajara Todor. That's actually her uh, title. And uh, she was a slave girl and married the, the king uh, or the sultan um, or the, you know, uh, sultan king. And then she became his favorite uh, wife. And then when he died, she was able, I mean, other, a lot of things happened, but she was able to manipulate her his uh, supporters to choose her to support her to become a queen. And she did become queen from, I think it's in the early 13th century in um, Baghdad, well, actually in uh, Damascus, not in Baghdad. But um, she ruled for about six months. She was very powerful. She actually defeated the French uh, invasion. But the, as Munisi calls, the um, short-sighted caliph the short-sighted caliph in Baghdad was um, upset that a woman is ruling these guys. So he sent an emissary, he sent a letter with an emissary saying that, what's happening to you guys? Don't you have a man to rule over you? And um, so they they just had to look around and, um, you know, eventually she had to give up, but she was very smart. She made sure that she married the man that the king, caliph in Baghdad, wanted to be the king in Damascus. So she married him and forced him to divorce his wife. And of course, the story gets very complicated after that. But then from then on, she was no longer the queen. And then she had a very tragic ending. But the, the time that she ruled was very short. And many people had written about her. Right. Mm -hmm. Then there was another one in Iran from the Ilkhanid, from the Turco-Mongolian background, the Ilkhanid, called Abish Khatun. And she was very young when she became the ruler in southern Iran, but her husband was actually ruling on her behalf. And then when he died, she became a ruling queen, but she was still very young, 23, 24 years old. But then through some skirmishes, she was thrown into jail, and then eventually she was killed when she was only 27 years old. And I didn't have as much information about her in this country, and I couldn't go to Iran do research. So then I focused on Razia Sultan of India, the 13, early 13th century. She ruled from 1236 to 1240. She's an amazing leader, and she's still being written about and a popular TV a series is made on her. Life and so, so she's in the folklore, in the popular knowledge, uh, oral history of the country. So that's why I then chose Razia Sultan from the 13th century. Arwa was something incredible. I didn't know much about her, and I found out myself. She is follower of the Fatimid dynasty in Cairo. She was an Ismaili, and she became the a ruling queen in the as an uh, historical accident because she was a queen consort when her husband came to power but then her husband died a few years later and then she became a queen regent and then her kids died and then she became a ruling queen and then she ruled for about 61 years or 71 years so 
and not much was known about her. And I wanted Muslims themselves and also outsiders to know a lot more about it. Hence these two. Also, you know, like there's only so much you can write. It wasn't, I wasn't making a survey story. I wanted to write something about these women's life stories, the way they came to power, the interactions they had with uh, the members of their courts, uh, those supportive of them, those um, fighting against them, and how well they were or they were not able to manage the court. So to 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 really write a chapter about each is not doing them justice because books are written about them. But then less than that, I thought would be injustice to them. That's amazing. So it sounds like there was a lot of rich uh, examples you could have chosen from. You know, you point out a really important limitation of history is having sources to back it up. And you didn't have some available to you on other women. So that makes total sense to me. Exactly. So of the two that you selected, Arwa and Razia, how did they get paths to power? And these women are in really different places um, in, in the world. So they must have really different paths to getting to power. How did they do that? Well, on the whole, we can talk about certain dominant path, whether for men or for women to get to power. In medieval times, one of the most important paths to power was through violence, right? So um, if you happen to be the leader of a tribe, so what you would do, either you support the person, or if you were more powerful, if that person didn't have popular support, internal support, you know, a lot of intrigue within the court, then you could just topple him, get into power. So violence is very important. Second principle, which may work hand in hand with violence or separately, is through dynastic succession. That is very important. Even if you are in a, a, a tribal community, succession relationships, blood relationships are very important. And many people pay attention to that. And that becomes an important principle for um, succession. So for these women, to begin with, they were from a very powerful families, although Arwa's background is very different from Razia Sultan's background because Razia's father was a slave uh, himself uh, who was bought by Razia's grandfather, whose daughter married uh, Razia's father. And here we have Razia. So the path to power just follow more or less similar uh, directions. One, in, in both cases, they came, well, the differences here. In the case of Arwa, she came to power, as I mentioned, because uh, her husband, who was the king, died. And she was trained by her uncle, who absolutely loved her, and her um, uncle's wife, her aunt, whose son she had married. So she had married her cousin. And then when he died, well, first of all, she was trained and um, educated within the royal court. So when her husband died, then she became the queen regent because she had two sons. And the most important person, the caliph or the imam caliph was Al-Mustansir, the, the, the caliph imam in Cairo, who then bestowed on her the status of, not only the status of regent, but to make sure that she had power and authority to run her country, to rule over her people, he elevated her to the position that has come to be known in the Ismaili religious hierarchy as Hujja. Hujja is a very, very powerful religious position, which is immediately below the Imam Caliph himself. So she was elevated to that position, which that by itself created all kinds of interesting debates and discussions, but she took advantage of it. She took advantage of it and she knew what she was doing. She um, tried to put down uh, other rival tribal groups. She was actually a good military strategist, just very intelligent. And then, as the faith would have it, her sons died. And then she became a queen, um, a ruling queen. And in all of that, she was able to maneuver, to manipulate not only the local Yemenite tribal leaders, but also to maintain a very good diplomatic relations with successive 
uh, Ismaili Imam Caliphs. So that's how she was able to stay in power. But both of them, both these queens had a very good relationship with their own people as opposed to male leaders. They were caring, they were intelligent, they were strategizing, they chose good people to um, work for them. So they, uh, they, um, they had the acumen, the political acumen to um, rule their country, to include, to be more inclusive than exclusive, to the point that Erwa was known by her people as our master. You know, I mean, they just loved her. And that's how she could stay in power for so long. She ruled, I mean, all together as a queen consort, queen regent, and ruling queen for about 71 years. And she died when she was 91 years old. That's amazing. I want to... It is amazing. In in that time period, 91, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, just imagine that her husband died when he was hardly 40 years old. Yeah, right. Wow. And her, her own sons died when they were younger. Yeah. So it strikes me that she comes out of the Fatimid Empire, which is an empire that uh, had challenged Abbasid rule, uh, which was a dominating uh, empire in Middle Eastern history. And I think a lot of teachers of Middle Eastern history and the history of Islam definitely talk about these different empires um, and, and how they fracture over time. And it strikes me, the Fatimids, I think, are just fascinating because they are descendants, um, or rather they support the descendants of uh, Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. So I think, first of all, there's like this women's history theme there. And the fact that a a daughter of Muhammad and her various descendants would have such a big following enough to make a competing dynasty that would then upend the trade routes of the Abbasids and and all sorts of things is to me so interesting. Um, So I'm just curious if there is, you know, she, she comes out of this, this empire that has this connection to women's history already. And so I'm curious if you think that there is some broader connection between that empire and women's rights. Okay, so let's just have a few uh, clarification concepts. Abbasid did not rule over the Middle East. Middle East is a 20th century concept created (laughs) by the British. So it was the Muslim world from um, all the way west and northwest Africa to Southeast Asia. So it was a tremendous area, vast area of the globe that by the time that Abbasid came to power, which is from 750 to 1250, that they they ruled those countries. It wasn't the Middle East as such, right? So, I include was, I include North Africa to Pakistan in my definition. <laughs> absolutely, you're right. But you know, you don't want to call them the Middle East. You can call them the Muslim world. Sure. Um, so um, the Abbasid were recognized as the caliph, and they took their names from the uncle or one of the uncles or the most important uncles of Prophet Muhammad Abbas to give themselves legitimacy, partly because they had decimated the Umavid, who were other Muslims, so they just killed them. And one of them ran away, went to Spain, and then created the Andalusia, and that's another story. So the Abbasid were powerful, but there were these local groups, local kingdoms, uh, local dynasties that also had powers, but they all paid tribute to the Abbasid, except for the Fatimid. Fatimid followed the line of Ali, which if you remember, we talked about the division of uh, succession to Prophet Muhammad uh, that came to be known as the Sunnis and the Shiites over the principle of whether the successor to Prophet Muhammad, the Caliph should be related to Prophet Muhammad by blood or by uh, the selection of the political elite. So the Fatimid continued the line of the uh, of uh, Ali, Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law and, and cousin. And like the Abbasid, they selected a name for themselves that was closely associated with the Prophet, with Prophet Muhammad. And that was the name of his daughter, Fatima. So to begin with, they had selected a feminine name for themselves. That, and the only surviving daughter of Prophet Muhammad after he died, who unfortunately died soon after Muhammad died. So to begin with, they had a very different approach to leadership, 
relationship to uh, to women, and also um, to the, of course, the tenets of the re of religion, right? But many of these leaders, whether they were the Fatimid or the Abbasid, right? I mean, they were very, very powerful. And of course, the Fatimid created um, political rivalry with the Abbasid. They didn't recognize their leadership and they created all kinds of problems for them. But what's important to realize is that many of these guys would have concubines, tons of concubines. And the concubines were either women who were enslaved in various wars that they had, or they were brought in to the court and uh, presented to the king or to the caliph or to the um, you know imam caliph. So the the, the Fatimid, many of them, many of the Fatimid imam caliphs ma married. I mean, the marriage actually is not a correct correct word. Cohabited, shall we say, with a lot of concubines, Christians, Jews, Armenians, uh, Africans from all over the world. So many of the followers, in fact, had a diversity of ethnicity and, and background. And in fact, one of the most important women that did not become a ruling queen, but was a, a queen regent, is the daughter of the fifth uh, uh, Fatimid uh, Imam Caliph. Her name is um, Settul Muluk, or Settul Mulk. Um, Settul Mulk had actually a private army to himself. She was very powerful. And apparently her brother came to power when she was trying to, to prevent him, but then he did come to power, but he became, strange you know this crazy ideas he had and at one and he used to just wander off and walk by himself in one of his um you know uh, walks and uh, tracks he disappeared he just simply disappeared right and nobody and many people think she was instigating his disappearance but what she managed to do was that his son to have his son to become the caliph and she became the the regent, queen regent, right? So there were very many powerful women, but her mother was a Christian uh, slave who married to the king and then became very powerful. So she already had sentiments uh, for diversity of religion, particularly. And uh, many of the Fatimid, as one of the main strands in their political educational order, was to teach, was to educate people, particularly the uh, royal prince and princesses. So education was part of the upbringing of the Ismailis, and um, many of them did not cover their hair. So that wasn't part of the um, tenets, uh, rules of religion. And besides, you know, like uh, veiling has always been disputed. The way that um, it has been imposed in present modern societies. I, I wanted to tap into the, your your comment there about veiling um, because I think that is a controversial piece. I wanted to tap into your comment about veiling because she was raised by her aunt Asma, who um, had close connections to power and she doesn't veil. And so um, I'm curious, in your book, you say, um, she had the exalted rank over men for from whom other women are secluded from. And this is a really different way of thinking. I have always, you know, there are many debates um, about veiling, like you said, and um, some women obviously see that it's it feel, or feel empowered by veiling um, and, you know, that they're, they, um, we know, and we've talked about this previously on our on our podcast. Um, but this is actually this to me. This seems like it, it confirms, I think, maybe a more Western feminist perspective that veiling is demeaning to women. Because at least that's how I'm reading it, and I would love for you to comment because it sounds like other women are kept from her as sort of like as a demeaning message. And so I'm just curious. Um, this is different than how I've, I've thought about it. And, um, I thought 
Muslim women in particular thought about it. And I know they're not a monolith. So I'm just curious if you could speak to that a little bit more. Well, I think your curiosity is well taken. Um, I was too, and I can only speculate um, why that comment was made about her, because mm. that's what I found in original uh, primary sources when I was reading that. My understanding is that, first of all, let's just take um, the history of veiling, all right, to some extent. What we know is that veiling was a tradition of aristocracy, in the Persian Empire, right? Because um, upper class women, women of the elite who happened to venture at, outside needed to cover themselves so that the jewelries, the fineries, the beauties or whatever they had would not cause discomfort or um, competition or um, envy on the part of the other. So they, they were, this, is, this was a sign of distinction, not sign of oppression. And that was very important. That was what was suggested by the prophet at a time when he was becoming very powerful and those women who um, claimed to have joined him started being harassed. So for them to show that they were part of these select group, these new group, this chosen group, was suggested to cover their bosoms, to cover themselves when they go to the public so that others would know that these are respectable women and they would not create or they would not harass them. And of course, the way that it is said how you to, to, to cover yourselves has been interpreted and um, disputed, and we don't want to get into that. But why does the woman in, uh, among the Fatimid um, at that time, she was the queen mother, was said to um, specifically not to cover her hair because of her exalted position one of the interesting things we need to understand about the slavery in Islam is that women can own slaves pretty much that men can, right? Men can have relations, sexual relations with their slaves. They don't need to have to marry them. They can just simply have sexual relations with them. Women could have slaves, but they could not legally have sexual relations with them. But because of their station, they did not need to cover themselves in front of their slaves, right? So by uh, associations, I can uh, make a guess that because her position was so high, anybody, any, any other person was in terms of rank beneath her. So she did not need to veil herself. It's not to demean women who decide to wear, they did not say that. I, I don't think there's any uh, organized um, campaign by the uh, Ismailis to say women do not need to cover themselves, but they left it more or less to um, individuals. As I said, Septal Mulk also did not cover her hair. These are women of high ranks, right? Um, that they did not do that. But if other people wanted to do it, they could do it. In fact, her brother, who became really completely crazy. Um, and now he has, uh, of course, some other followers known as Yazid, uh, as um, Druz. Um, he forced women to wear the scarf, stay home, not come out. But when she was able to make him disappear, now whether she did it or not, I don't know, but that's one of the rumors. Immediately they said the women didn't need to cover their hair. So that became something. And she was, as I said, you know, her mother was Christian. And that's not to say that many Christians do not cover their hair. They're quite respectful when they go particularly to church in part of the East and the Muslim world. So I think that's how I understand the fact that uh, Asma, as the queen mother and the most powerful person in the court, did not need to cover her hair. And that to the point that a comment was made about that whole act of not covering her hair. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these 
is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, no, very <laughs> funny. <laughs> but that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, and they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So. It, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, yeah. which is really cool. So definitely if you're people interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So what kind of queen does Arwa go on to be? She she comes to power, and I'm just curious what sort of, how would you define her rule? Is she a powerful ruler? Uh, is does she is it chaotic? Uh, how does I mean she lives for a long time, obviously. So she she must to some extent have created a degree of stability. Um, but what is her rule like for the people that that live in her her kingdom? Again, we have to speculate some of that because of her background being an Ismaili, and uh, the Ismailis were overthrown by the AUB, and many of them were killed. So what she did was to hide a lot of the primary sources and documents that had to do with her or her you know, court and her people. And many of them didn't come to our knowledge until many, many years, centuries later. But what we can say about her is that she was um, quite authoritative. She had a good sense about herself. She was charismatic. She was caring. She had particularly a good sense about her people. Again, what we read in the primary sources and others that have worked on that, on her um, rule, is that she um, did not tax people, usually. She created trade route between Yemen and West uh, India. Uh, and um, she um, was more than anything else that I can just understand from what I read, was a caring person. She was not... She was not a wishy-washy person. She would punish people who did not obey her. In fact, there are many interesting stories about her son, one of her sons-in-law who wanted to get an, another wife, and she actually just made it impossible, threw him out of uh, you know, Yemen. She ha he had to go to, to um, Cairo. So she was a very authoritative, I mean, authoritarian, shall we say an authoritative person. She had a good sense about herself. She was caring. She was charismatic. She cared about her people. For that matter, people liked her. And they, even though there were other people in other tribes who tried to um, stage um, struggles against her, they did not get any, uh, they did not get anywhere. That to me sounds like she was pretty successful in. Absolutely. In yeah. Okay. Yes, you're right. I mean, again, you know, it's not easy to be a queen. I mean, she was effectively the ruling queen, even when her husband was still alive or her children, her two sons, particularly one of them became, you know, a young, a very young child, uh, caliph. She was effectively the ruler. and She knew what she was doing and people liked her. And to the point that we still have streets after her uh, and her uh, you know, where she's buried is being um, as a pilgrimage center. 
talk to me about her decline and the end of end of her rule. What what brings that about and what is the aftermath of her rule like? Effectively, death, age. She became very old and that she died. And that was, unfortunately, the end of uh, her uh, reign and the reign of the um, dynasty uh, that she was, um, uh, uh, you know, a ruling queen. Um, I think maybe, um, again, because they're not in, in the Sulehi, this is the dynasty, there are not that many, or at least I haven't been able to find one, uh, a lot of information about what happened towards the end of her uh, state. She split more or less, not officially, but from the Fatimi uh, Imam Caliphs who were living in Cairo and ruling Cairo, and she was down south in Yemen. Um, and in fact, she created um, more or less, um, or founded more or less um, a branch of Ismailism that is split from um, the dominant Ismailis. Of course, it had started just before, you know, she um, got involved in that. But anyways, she died of old age. Mm-hmm. And by the time she died, that does not seem either she had mentored um, a, a successor or that there was any other important successors to emerge from this, um, you know, gradual um, weakening of her just primarily due to age and also maybe tribal competitions to the point that a few years after she died, there were one or two other people from the Sulehid who did claim um, a success, uh, you know, um, the dynastic succession, but it was not successful and they were eventually decimated by the AUB, by the other um, dominant uh, groups who came to power, who were still supporters paying tribute to the Abbasid back in Baghdad. Mm. So that's how she, she basically died. Do other women lead after her, um, like in other dynasties, or is the precedent, is the precedent positive or is the precedent negative in the, in the legacy she leads? Very good point. I don't think we should use her as the only one who has left a legacy, positive or negative. In all these countries, we have court system, we have dynasties who are very, very, were very, very powerful. And a lot of princesses lived in these areas, in these uh, courts. And many of them were quite um, uh, charismatic, ambitious, um, vying for power. So we don't, I mean, other than the ones that I told you in 13th century uh, that, you know, in Iran, in in Damascus and in Baghdad, that these three women became to be ruling queens. There were tons of uh, princesses who were very powerful. They had a lot of money. They had more or less their own army, their own supporters. They were involved in the palace intrigues. So, um, and also many of them used the money and resources to patronize you know, monuments and buildings or uh, institutions. So they use the powers, not just in political terms, but in many, at, at many other realms of social and political life. They were, they were quite active in, um, particularly in Iran, you know, circles of women poets, as I said, patronizing monuments and things like so. We shouldn't only look at these women rulers. That was my focus as the you know ruling queens. But you know intricacies uh, inside the palace. There are very many interesting, powerful women, and unfortunately, many of them their histories were not written. But right. the fact that we don't have those histories written doesn't mean that they didn't exist or they didn't try to exert power and pressure to get their own people you know into positions of power. Okay. So for your second queen, you take us to the east a little bit uh, into India to Razia Sultan. She is coming out of the flourishing city of Delhi. And again, similar to the Fatiman dynasty, I couldn't help but think about, okay, so there's art and there's culture and there's scholarship and it paves the way for a woman to be a leader here. Um, so how does she come to power in, in this culture and in, in Delhi, in India, to be a Muslim woman leader? Well, I like the fact that you've taken note of the um, beauty and magnific- magnificence of, of Delhi. 
and um, um, educational institutions that were created there, monuments that were uh, built, uh, many other um, um, creative uh, actions were taking place. Poetry, again, was very important. What is interesting in her case, her father uh, is actually not from India. You know, like the, there were a group of um, Muslims coming from Afghanistan and uh, Central Asia, and then uh, gradually um, established themselves as the rulers in North India. Lots, you know, much of Northern India, they became the rulers. So there, this was a um, Muslim minority uh, ruling uh, the Hindu um, uh, majority and, you know, a smattering of Muslims who had uh, come to these areas. So her father <laughs> has a very interesting story. He was a, a young, very apparently handsome man of a very good family from Bukhara in present-day Uzbekistan. And he was the youngest of many brothers. And according to stories, um, her bro his brothers felt jealous of him and took him to the bazaar when he was only seven years old and they sold him. They sold the brothers, pretty much like the story of um, the biblical stories or the Quranic stories of Joseph. So then he's bought by um, some you know, rich merchants and given her background, he was a bit educated and he's being educated in the process and he um, raises in um, his positions and he's bought by uh, this particular man, Qutbuddin, who um, then attacks North, Northern India and becomes the Sultan in Northern India. So he has his wife, he, one of his daughters, marrying um, Razia Sultan's father, Iltutmish. But he was a slave of his, you know, of his father-in-law, right? And they had one daughter that we know of uh, called Razia Sultan. And he, like many other um, Muslim leaders, had many concubines. One of them was very, uh, his favorite. Razia's mother apparently was reclusive and very religious you know, stayed secluded in her own palace. Um, but Razia became very close to her father. Her father was very excited, was very interested in her upbringing. So she was uh, educated and um, she was taught all kinds of, you know, archeries and um, horseback ridings. Of course, you know, everybody had to ride on horse or elephants. That was the only <laughs> form of, uh, you know, mobility, uh, rapid mobility too. Um, so anyways, uh, every primary source that I have read uh, highlights and emphasizes how close she was to her father. And there are all kinds of interesting stories that he, the father, apparently has told some of his followers when the question of succession was raised. He basically suggested his daughter because she was charismatic she, and she was not secluded. I mean, it's interesting because some of the sources talk about her seclusion. But that doesn't jive well, because how could she be secluded, yet learning how to, you know, uh, ride on horses and elephants and learn archery and doing all that? But we'll talk about that later. But anyways, he apparently said to some of his followers when they were asking him about the question of succession, who would be the best person to succeed him? He says. Razia Sultan, and they said, well, why would the Sultan say that when he has many other sons who can inherit the you know, crown after he dies? He says, yep, I can tell, I'll tell you, I know my sons. None of them is as capable as she is, and none of them can actually rule as well as this uh, young woman can. And so there are two different stories. Some say, no, he said, you know, he picked his son of this favorite concubine that he had. The others say, no, he picked Sultan, Raja Sultan. In actual historical fact, when he died, that young man's mother, who was very powerful within the court and had already created a network of alliances, managed to get her son into position of power and to wear the crown and to get the green um, dress or whatever it was called, the, the insignia of leadership. But then he was an attractive young man. He started 
you know, playing it up, spending the money um, within the bazaars and, you know, drinking and dancing and, I mean, having dancers around him and maybe he himself danced too, who knows? And then Razia realized that his mother, that is to say her stepmother, was actually planning to kill her. She had already managed to kill one of his young brothers, who was apparently a very good uh, young man. You know, he, she had him uh, blinded and then killed. So Razia recognized that six months into his, her brother's reign, she realizes that her life is in danger. And there's very interesting stories. Some historians say it happened, some say it didn't. But anyways, the story is that in, on Friday, on one particular Friday, she goes to the terrace or the balcony of the palace, which was adjacent to the mosque. And she addresses the people who had come to visit her, I mean, to, to the mosque. I mean, she was very smart. She, she tried to arrange that on Friday because everybody goes to mosque on that day. And she says, look, people, you know, I have done this. I have done that. You know, my father is my father. That My stepmother is planning to kill me. And my brother hasn't really done much for the people. And he has already emptied the national treasury. So then the story is that the people attack the palace with the support of the military that Razia had. They uh, capture the stepmother and then eventually the brother and they throw them into jail and they uh, die. He dies there and she does. She's, she, I guess she's killed too. So then it's then that she is acknowledged as the best leader because these guys saw her. I mean, the, by, by that, by these guys, I mean his, her father's military um, supporters who, was, who had a very particular name. They were known as Chelganis, but these were his particular slaves who were very much devoted to him. So they helped to bring her to power and to have her to wear the crown, as it were. I think it must have been in April of 1236. And that's how she comes to power. So she was charismatic. She was a smart. She had the art of being a ruler. And more importantly, she had the support of her father. And then also her brother was an incompoo. I mean, he was an incompetent young man, not capable of really leading and ruling his country. She has this complicated rise to power. And so I'm just curious on the other end of this, how does she fall? Does the policing of her relationship um, with others and, you know, with the, these men that she's interested in have anything to do with that? Um, we seem to see those themes in present day, the policing of women's relationships. So I'm, I'm just curious if that's a piece of it or if it, if there's something totally different that leads her to fall. Very good. No, I, I like the fact that you made the uh, relationship to what is happening to women leaders uh, in some countries nowadays. But yes, she had a very um, exciting, magnificent coronation. You know, people came and there are all these uh, stories written about her. Um, there are stories about, you know, how the, uh, how many people came, what her crown was, what the um, feast was, all that. But she inherited some of the military leaders in her court from her father's uh, military leaders who had joined her brother and now her. Um, among them was an Ethiopian man who happened to be of a different ethnicity and race. Most of those guys who were the leaders around her were of Turkish ethnicity, Turco-Mongolian ethnicity. This man, and his name was Yakut, was of um, Ethiopian ethnicity and of a different racial uh, um, composition. Now she started having, she started creating some changes within her court, removing some of the leaders, replacing other ones. So that by itself created tension and resentment. In addition to that, she started being a lot more inclusive. She included some Hindus in her court. Remember, court is the center of activities. There were no institutions of you know, like we had in modern times of different branches of government, everything was centered around the, the court of the king or the sultan. So she started including people from other ethnicities in her, particularly the Hindus. 
And also she started removing some of the taxes on the people. That in fact was true in the case of Erwa that we just talked about too, because they realized what a tremendous pressure it was on people taxing them with farming. Of course, most of these people were farmers, so they had to pay a lot to the ruling regimes. So she tried to reduce that. And she had, according to some stories, one of these guys, in addition to Yakut being from Ethiopian background and different race, another you know, leader, another emir, as they're known, in her court, Altunia, who, according to some tradition, was a childhood friend of hers and perhaps interested in her, hoping to marry her. Just imagine she was a very sought after unmarried woman. This is very unusual. She was 30 years old when she came to power. She was not married. Of course, we don't know how she looked, whether she was beautiful, tall, short, fat, you know, skinny. We have no idea how she looked. And the court biographer, Jos Johnny, says nothing about her physicality and her looks. So we have to just make assumptions about that. But anyways, you would think that in her positions, there would be very many men who may want to marry her, particularly her father's devotees and supporters and uh, former slaves. And she didn't want to marry, apparently. I have a long section in my book why perhaps she didn't get married. But I mean, that's another matter. For our purposes now, she was not married. So this guy, Altunia, was interested in in her. And when, after a few years, many of these leaders realized that she was not to stay in the shadows and allow these guys to rule, you know, from her shadows and realizing that she had a mind of her own, she had agency, she was smart, she had supporters, she had devotees, then they tried to scheme against her. Now, what would be the best thing to disrepute a woman leader is to say that she's of loose morality. And what would be better than having a man of a different ethnicity and different race. So they started this rumor about her having relations with this man, which was totally untrue. But then they couldn't get rid of him because he had he was very close to it. And he was the leader or the, uh, shall we say, the uh, um, president or the emir of the stable that is creating, providing uh, transport for the for the for the king. Just imagine you have to either go by elephant or by horse and you need somebody to organize your travels or wherever you want to go. What happens was that Altunia is trying to hatch a plan against her, feeling perhaps jealous of her attention to Yagut, who was totally devoted to her. With a member of her close circle, Altunia, hatches a plan to um, lure her out of Delhi. Delhi was the center of her power. People loved her, right? But they knew that they couldn't do much to her because people would just attack them or prevent them from uh, accomplishing their, um, their intentions, carrying on their intentions. So they tried to lure her out of Delhi by a re- uh, staging um, resurrection. Uh, uh, insurrections outside of Delhi. So while she, and she was just come back from another battle, another fight. So she leaves Delhi. As she leaves Delhi, leaving Yakut behind, going to fight to put down the insurrections, the people in the palace quickly get hold of Yakut and kill him. You know, they just get rid of him. And Altunio back there uh, captures her because you know most the, uh, there was no such thing as an as an army. You had mercenaries, right? Armies and the way that we have it in this order and tradition is more of a modern phenomenon. People would just join um, many of these battles and fights to gain something and to either you know financial gains or just uh, political gains. So many of her um, army mercenaries leave her join her brother's army, who at that time, this is a younger brother, a half-brother, 
who now was able to gain the support of the same guys who had helped to bring her to power. So then she is arrested by Altunio, taken to his fortress. Then her brother is crowned as the new sultan. So evil <laughs> on so many levels. It's, it's, it's all the dynamics of power. It is always like that. Anywhere you look at it, it is like that. People try their, um, I mean, there are no ethics as such. Look at what's happening in, the, in our um, leaders here. They say something about our former president one day, the next day they completely go the other way and then they try to kiss his, um, you know. <laughs> so it, it is it is it is it is all in the dynamics of power and there's a there's a uh, uh interesting saying attributed to uh justice um the late justice scalia mm -hmm. who has said apparently that the first instinct of power is to preserve power mm -hmm. so you know i mean and that i think it really holds true whether in medieval times or in, in modern times. And we can see it among our uh, leaders. And it doesn't have to be just in a highly democratic society or presumably or hopefully democratic society like ours or, you know, um, dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, Iran or other places in mm. the world. Mm. What are your takeaways with these two queens? When you think about these women and really different stories, one living to 91 and, and dying at the end of a dynasty, another one dealing with all sorts of chaos and policing of her life and sexuality. What are what do you think about when, when you think about these women and what do they mean to you as a scholar and as a woman? And first, to begin with, my sample is very small to make a generalization. Nonetheless, I do have some ideas about what I think about them. But it's important to realize again, uh, not just the similarities between them, but the difference, the differences. India was very different, even in uh, you know thir uh, 13th century. Um, you know, it's a huge, diverse ancient civilization. Even though this was um, uh, force and dominant, I mean, you know, like um, outside force that had dominated North India. Yemen was a tribal society, much smaller. And completely a different tribal societies have a different political structure and different subjectivities and sensibilities about um, gender relations and relations of domination and submission. Nonetheless, one thing that I um, take away, not just from these two women, but from the other leaders whose lives I have discussed, is that they were aware of their people. They cared. I mean, when we get to be in a Zibuto, we realize that that, very much like Razia Sultan of 13th century, people were her, her base of power. And that's where her interest lied. Same way with Razia Sultan and um, Arwa. So the first thing I think I would say, the difference in terms of between men and women's leadership at that high level is that women were not caring a lot more aware of their people and concern about their well-being by reducing their taxes, by including them in their, um, as much as they were able to, in their um, course or in their system of governance. They were charismatic. Look, these women, Benazir, uh, Megavati Sikhanaputri, had other siblings female siblings, none of them were able, capable to do what they did. There was something charismatic, something unique about them. I mean, we're pretty much like our siblings, yet at the same time, we're very different from them. So that's what um, we can also take away. They were, they were ambitious. They were politicians. They wanted to maintain their power too, but they played the game a little differently. And since the, the interlocutors, those um, who played political games with them, happened to be mostly men. They seem to have often lost because they were more willing to use violence. And that is um, one of the most important characteristics of patriarchy. I think the history of these women, particularly the older ones, are yet to be written. 
Uh, this is just the beginning, particularly that of Erwa, because her um, the information about her didn't come about until I guess 18th, 19th century, you know, where the information were found. So some good books are written about them, but still to be written about them. But what I would uh, highlight is really that they were um, caring, charismatic, smart, intelligent women, yet had good sense about their own authority. Well, Professor, thank you so much for sharing this story with me and our listeners. This is a really powerful example of women in the medieval era who were thriving and, and ruling. And I think it's one worth telling. You know, when we think about Muslim rulers in particular, a lot of male people pop up in my mind. And I think this will help shift that narrative that women were right there alongside them, whether in the court or outright ruling. And it's so powerful. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.